So I want to start by giving you a picture of what sin is. Sin is like a sickness. It's like a disease that every human being is born with. We're all born with hearts that do not want to bend the knee before our Creator God. We're all born with hearts that refuse to seek our joy in Him who is the greatest joy. We're born with hearts that don't want to depend upon His mercy. We want to be self-reliant. We want to be independent. We want to make our own choices. Those are the hearts that we're born with, and that is what sin is. And in ourselves... We can't do anything about our sin. That's the hearts that we have. And so our sin is going to grow and grow and grow until it ends up destroying us forever. But there's good news. This sickness of sin can be completely cured, healed by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was punished on the cross 2,000 years ago, and when he was punished, he paid the penalty, the punishment for the sins of everybody who will put their trust in him. And so when we see our sin and want to be forgiven by God and want to be changed, set free from our sin by his power, and when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we will be completely forgiven. For all of our sins, all of our past sins, present sins, future sins, completely forgiven, and we will be freed from sin's power and brought into the joy of knowing God as our friends we were singing about earlier. So there's the sickness of sin, and God has provided the solution for it, but there's another problem. And the problem is that one symptom of this sickness is that it tweaks our thinking so we we don't want to think it's very serious. Sin whispers to us, this isn't that big of a deal. Everybody sins. Don't worry about it. It's not really a problem. And if we believe that, then we will not turn to Christ. We will not be forgiven. We will not be freed. We will not be brought into relationship with God to know him forever. And because of that problem, because our sin tries to persuade us that it's not a problem, because of that, Jesus came and he taught frequently about the seriousness of sin, and God has given us the Bible. And one of the main themes of the Bible is to wake us up to the seriousness of sin. And that's what we're going to see in our passage for this afternoon. Luke chapter 22 starting in verse 63, going through chapter 23, verse 25. We're preaching our way through Luke's gospel. We're coming, coming toward the cross. Now, in this passage, Luke's main point is to help us see the wickedness and the power of sin. He wants to help us see what sin does to people. But I want to help you see that for yourselves. So let's ask this question to start off. I'm sorry, I want to give you some background, some background so that we'll be deeply impacted by this passage. So the, the question is, what has Luke's gospel up to this point shown us about Jesus? 
What does Luke tell us about Jesus? What was Jesus like? And as I thought about that question, it struck me that some of you maybe have an objection that, that needs to be addressed at least to some extent. And that objection is you're thinking, why would we take seriously anything that's in the Bible? Why take seriously what Luke writes? Isn't the Bible just legends made up by people? Why believe it? And there's lots of reasons why we believe the Bible. We have every reason to believe the Bible. But let me just mention one. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he says that what he writes is based on eyewitness accounts. So these aren't fables or legends made up. Luke talked to people who walked with Jesus and lived with Jesus, who listened to Jesus teach, who saw Jesus love, who experienced Jesus miracles. What Luke writes is based on eyewitness accounts. Now, of course, you may choose to believe that Luke is not telling the truth about these eyewitness accounts. You could choose to believe that Luke's lying about that, and people do lie. But here's the question I want you to think about. Do you have a good reason to think that Luke is lying? I don't think there's any good reason to think that Luke is lying. But if you're not persuaded of the truth of the Bible, I would encourage you to spend some time this week thinking about that. Do you have a good reason to think that Luke is lying? Think about that this week. And with that in mind, now let's listen to what Luke has told us about Jesus up to this point in his gospel. Jesus is amazing. In Luke chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus reads a prophecy from Isaiah in, in the synagogue. And then he rolls up the scroll and he says, Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. Luke 4.21. In Luke 6.27, Jesus teaches his followers, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Powerful teaching. In Luke 7.14, Jesus comes upon a funeral of a widow's only son which would mean she's left all alone. And Jesus has such compassion upon her that he raises her son from the dead, alive. The funeral's over. He's alive. Luke 7, 14. Luke 7, 38. Jesus forgives a woman for all of her sins. All of her sins forgiven. And she is so moved by what he has done that she goes into a house where he's being entertained for a special lunch and she falls at his feet weeping with joy over her forgiveness. That's our Jesus. That's what he does. Luke 9.22, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to be crucified, buried, and I'm going to rise again. That's what he said. Luke 11.39, Jesus warns the religious leaders, even though you look righteous on the outside, on the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. 
They did not like that, but he was right. Luke 13, 13. I love this story. Jesus meets a woman who has been bent over double for 18 years by a demon, by a spirit. And with great compassion, he commands that spirit to leave. And she stands up straight, first time in 18 years. In Luke 18.4, Jesus heals a blind beggar with a word. And his vision is completely restored, just like that. Luke 18.15, Jesus, who has thousands of people wanting his attention, he welcomes parents who would like him to pray for their children. Yes, bring them to me. I'll pray for them. That's Jesus. Do you get a feel of what Luke has told us about Jesus? All these eyewitness reports that he's told us about him? Jesus is amazing. Now, with that background, I want us to look at what we see in today's passage. Luke 22, starting in verse 63. One of the themes in this passage is the way that sin produces darkness, wickedness. It enslaves people. We're going to see the, the, the power and the wickedness of sin in this passage here that Luke writes for us. But I want you to see this for yourself. So here's the question I want us to ask. What does Luke emphasize in this passage? We're going to go through it section by section, and I'm going to try to help you see that Luke's point through this long section of Scripture is the darkness, the wickedness, the power of sin, and what sin does to people. Let's take a look. Start with verses 63 to 65. Jesus has just been arrested. We saw that last week. He's being held in custody by Jewish temple guards. And what do these guards do to him? Verses 63 to 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So the guards who are holding Jesus in custody, are horribly abusing him. They're, they're mocking him while they beat him. They blindfold him. Imagine being blindfolded so you can't tell which way a punch is coming from. Then somebody throws their fist into your mouth or into your eye or into your cheek and you don't know where it's coming from. With, Tell us where that came from if you're a prophet. Luke is showing us sin's power and sin's wickedness, what sin does to people like these temple guards. Next section, verses 66 through 71. It just gets darker. Are you ready? Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. So these are all the Jewish religious leaders are there. And they're taking Jesus into their own Jewish courtroom where he is going to be interrogated so they can find evidence against him. Keep reading, verse 66, and they led him away to their council and they said, 
If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Now, why does Jesus say that? Remember in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, he asks these same religious leaders about John the Baptist. He says, tell me about John the Baptist. Was his authority from God or was it just from man, from himself? Where was his authority from? And the religious leaders had to make a little huddle because they knew that if they answered one, some people would be upset. If they answered the other, other people would be upset. And what they're all about is maintaining their position and their wealth and their power as religious leaders so they, they wouldn't answer Jesus. Showing that they are more concerned about maintaining their wealth and position as power than they're interested in finding out the truth of John the Baptist and how God sent him and how he was foretelling the coming of Jesus. So what this shows is that they are not interested in the truth. And that's why Jesus doesn't answer them. But look at what Jesus does say in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Remember last week we talked about the fact that the phrase Son of Man is one of the ways Jesus refers to himself, which is, points back to Daniel chapter 7, that prophecy. But here Jesus is referring to another prophecy found in Psalm 110, verse 1, which says that the Messiah is going to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, of God. Which means that the Messiah is going to be equal to God the Father in power and in authority. Then verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? And he said to them, you say that I am. Now, why does he answer that way? Well, this is Jesus' way of agreeing, but not just agreeing. He's also saying, you need to think more deeply about what you've just said. He's saying, you say that I'm the son of God, but you don't understand what that means. They probably thought that Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm a second God. There's the God of the Old Testament. I'm a second God. As if there's two gods, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus knew there is one God in three persons, like we sang about earlier this afternoon. So Jesus is saying, you need to think more deeply about that. But they don't want to think more deeply. All they want is to find evidence that will get him killed because he's threatening their power, their position, their wealth as religious leaders. And they think they've got the evidence now. So they answer in verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now I just want you to See what's happening here. These are the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And standing before them is the Messiah, sent from God. God in the flesh. He's there. They're the religious leaders, and there is God in the flesh standing right in front of them. But all they're concerned about is maintaining their power and their position and their Money. They're not interested in the truth of who Jesus is. He's threatening their position. 
All they want to do is find evidence to see him destroyed. Do you see what sin does to people? Do you feel the the darkness of this and the power, what it's done to them? Luke wants us to see this. Are you seeing it? There's more. It gets worse. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. The Jewish leaders don't have the authority to kill Jesus. That has to come from Rome. Rome is occupying Israel. Got to check with Rome. But since the Jewish leaders now think they have enough evidence to persuade Rome that he should be killed, they take the next step and bring Jesus to Pilate, who's over all of Israel, the Roman governor. Verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man, there's three accusations here. First, misleading our nation. Second, and forbidding us to give tribute or to pay taxes to Caesar. Third, saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Three accusations brought against Jesus by the religious leaders. The first two are false. Jesus had not led Israel away from God. The Jewish religious leaders were leading Israel away from God. That's why they were threatened by Jesus because he was leading the people back to God. First accusation, false, a lie. Second accusation, false. Jesus had never forbidden taxes to be paid to Caesar. You remember what Jesus said, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's, right? Jesus wants us to pay our taxes. Never forbade that. How about the third accusation? Jesus did say he was the Messiah. Yes. And he did not deny that he was a king. Although he was very clear that his kingdom was not a political kingdom of this world, which was what Rome would have been very concerned about. You can see that Pilate was concerned. Verse 3, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Again, Jesus answers in a way that is agreeing, but also saying that Pilate needs to think more deeply about what that means. It doesn't mean, Pilate, what you think it means. Pilate, you just mentioned the king of the Jews. We are not talking about an earthly political king here. Think more deeply about this, Pilate. So Pilate responds in verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Think about that. Pilate, ruling all of Israel, not guilty, innocent. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. Another false accusation. Jesus hadn't stirred up the people. He taught the people. He healed the people. He cast demons out of people. He fed the people. 
didn't stir up the people. But Pilate was very concerned about hearing about Galilee. So verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Here's what's going on. Pilate ruled all of Israel, all of Palestine. Herod ruled just the northern section, Galilee, under Pilate's rule. And so when Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he said, I'm going to send him to, uh, to Herod so that Herod can give me his opinion on whether he's guilty or innocent. So see what we've covered in this next section here. These religious leaders again and again and again are bringing false accusations against Jesus. Their Old Testament said, don't do that. And they're doing it. Do you see what sin does? It just twists people's consciences into knots. Or are you seeing what Luke wants to show us? The power and the darkness of sin. Sin is deadly serious. Don't ever make light of sin. Luke wants us to see this here in this passage. Look what sin does to people. Next section. Verses 8 through 12. After Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Could be good news, right? Sorry, it's not. He was very glad for he'd long desired to see him because he'd heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Herod was more interested in being entertained by Jesus. Show us a miracle, Jesus. I've heard you do amazing things. He wants to be entertained by Jesus rather than learning the truth about Jesus. So Herod asked him many questions, trying to get a miracle out of him, but Jesus did not answer because he knew why Herod was asking. And so what did the religious leaders do? Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, vehement angrily, fiercely, passionately, false accusation after false accusation. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing. Here, king of the Jews will dress you up like a king would be dressed up. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. That last line, I think, shows us that Herod and Pilate became friends now because they were agreeing that Jesus was innocent, as we will see in the next verses. This common conviction of Jesus' innocence brought them together, them, they who had been enemies up to that, that point. But notice here that Herod only wants to be entertained and when that doesn't happen, he and his soldiers treat Jesus with contempt and mock him. Herod is not interested in Jesus. And the religious leaders keep making false accusations. So do you see the darkness of sin, the power of sin, what sin has done to these religious leaders and what it has done to Herod and his fellow soldiers? 
last section. It's a longer one, verses 13 through 25. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So all the people are there. It's just like he's standing up maybe on a balcony and religious leaders and people, a crowd of people there. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So here Pilate's called together the religious leaders and all the people, and he gives his verdict. Both Herod and Pilate agree. Jesus is innocent. The accusations are false. He's done nothing worthy of death. But to keep the religious leaders happy, he says, okay, listen, I'll, I'll punish him, probably have him be beaten, have him be whipped, and then I'm going to release him. But verse 18, but they all cried out together, all the religious leaders and all the people, they all cried out together, away with this man, Jesus, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Now pause there. Here's the background. When more than one Israelite was arrested for something, Pilate would often as a gesture of goodwill to the people, say, I'll release one, you choose which one. And they would choose, and that one would be released. That's what's going on here. And Pilate was sure that they would want Jesus released. He'd heard what Jesus had done, how he'd lived amongst them. But the religious leaders and the people did not want Jesus released. They wanted Barabbas released. Verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him, Jesus, crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why? Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Now just pause here for a second. Jesus, at this point, is completely confident. Don't feel sorry for Jesus here. This is going exactly according to plan, right? Just like we saw last week. He and God the Father, God the Spirit, had planned this all out for salvation. So don't feel sorry for Jesus here. He is not trembling with fear. This is going exactly according to plan. Pilate says, I find in him no guilt deserving of death. Verse 22, I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas, for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. 
see what sin does to people. See the, the power and the wickedness of sin. Pilate saw through the religious leaders' false accusations. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. I find no guilt in him. But the religious leaders kept saying, crucify him, crucify Jesus, crucify him. And Pilate gives Jesus over to them so they can crucify him. Now picture this, this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is God in the flesh. All things were created through him and for him. Sent from God the Father, the Messiah, promised all through the Old Testament. And picture the religious leaders and Pilate demanding that Jesus, the Son of God, be crucified. And just see the dark, powerful wickedness of sin. See what sin does to people. And picture Pilate, knowing that Jesus is innocent, knowing full well, find no guilt in him. He's just told everybody his verdict. Oh, okay, you can crucify him. Look at what sin has done to him as well. Luke is showing us sin's power, sin's wickedness, sin's seriousness, what sin can do to people. That's what Luke is showing us. Now think about it. In this passage, every single person we've read about except Jesus is completely under the power and the wickedness of sin. Every single person. So Luke wants us just to feel this. Jesus is just shining forth like light. Everything else is darkness and wicked. All the other people. And Luke wants us to understand that the sin that's in all of these people has also been in all of us. That's us. That's how we have all been. We've all been born with this disease of sin. The Bible is very clear. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We've all been born with the disease of sin. And as a result, we've all turned our backs on God. We have hearts that want to turn away from God, not seeking our joy and God, who's the ultimate, all-satisfying joy, but refusing to bend the knee before him to receive his mercy. We want to be self-reliant, making our own choices, seeking our joy and everything else. It's tragic. And that's why we get impatient, which is sin. That's why we get jealous, which is sin. That's why we gossip, which is sin. That's why we lust, which is sin. We covet, which is sin. That's why we sin. Our problem is sin. Our problem. No one in this room has escaped that problem. We're all born with it. And sin is deadly serious. So this raises one last question. You've heard a lot of bad news so far. I've got some good news here. Are you ready? How can we be saved from sin's wickedness and power? 
It's through the, the one man in that crowd who's just shining with goodness and love and strength and purity and holiness and righteousness, sinlessness. Jesus. It's through him. That's what he said back in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He said, For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. The reason Jesus came down from heaven, took on a human nature, sinless, took on a human body, was born of the Virgin Mary, was so he could die on the cross. That's why he came. That's why I said everything's going exactly according to plan. He had said this is what was going to happen. That's why he came to die on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was being punished for all the sins of everyone who will put their trust in him. So think of what this means. When you see your sin, when you own up to your sin, and you turn to Jesus, wanting to be forgiven. Oh, I need to be forgiven. I need a, a savior. You want to be forgiven? You want to be freed from sin's power? When you turn to Jesus that way and trust your life to him, a miracle happens at that point. A supernatural miracle takes place. One, all your sins are forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins, all Forgiven from being under a weight of guilt that no one can bear to. It's gone. And God's love is poured out upon you seconds. He pours his love into your heart. You are assured that you're forgiven. You and God are reconciled. He's your friend. Sin's guilt paid for. God's love poured into your heart. And God's love is so satisfying it is by far the best joy you've ever experienced, which makes sin's power, it breaks sin's power, because why pursue the puny, tiny little pleasures of sin when you have the all-satisfying joy of knowing God in Jesus Christ? So sins are forgiven. Love is poured into your heart. Sin's power is broken. That's what happens. People who've been under the power and the darkness of sin People who've been enslaved to sin can be completely set free through Jesus Christ. Many, many of you have experienced that, haven't you? Glory, freedom, transformed. Jesus is the answer. Now let me apply this to us in two ways. First of all, I'm sure that with a group this size, some of you have, have not yet come to the place where you've owned up to your sin and where you've put your trust in Jesus. You've wanted to be forgiven. You've wanted to be set free. You've wanted to be reconciled to God. Some of you have never come to that place yet. But Jesus loves you. And he knows that you are under the power, the darkness of, of sin. And he came to the earth to seek and to save the lost. So he's calling you tonight. That's why you're here. That's why he brought you here. 
He's calling you tonight. Trust me. Turn from your sin. Trust me. I will forgive you. I will fill you with my presence, the Father's love, and I will free you from sin's power. You won't become perfect, but oh, you will be changed and you will be progressively changed all the way to heaven. You will leave here a new creation, a new person. So I just plead with you, if if you are here and you've not ever put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are under a deadly serious illness, sickness of sin. And Jesus can save you from your sin. He died on the cross. He suffered the cross so that you could be forgiven and freed and reconciled to God. So right now, put your trust in Jesus. Please do that. That's one application. Second application. Others of you have turned to Jesus and been forgiven and experienced the freeing power of God's love, satisfying you so much that sin's power is broken. You've experienced that. You're not sinless, but you've been changed and, you're, and you've, you've, you've seen that take place in your life. But, but some of you who have turned to Christ, I, I'm sure in a group this size, are, are now holding on to some area of sin that you want to keep. God can take the rest of them, but I want this one. Or maybe there's more than one. You've not confessed it before the Lord. You're not repenting of it. You want to hold on to it. And I want you to understand that what you're holding in your hand is deadly serious. It's sin. Deadly serious. You've seen Luke show us what sin does to people. Feel that. And I would urge you to confess that sin to the Lord Jesus right now. Right now. Sin's telling you not to worry. It's not that big of a deal. You should worry. It is a very big deal. It is a very big deal. But if you will confess that sin, you will be assured by Jesus himself that you're forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. You'll be assured of your salvation. He will pour his love into your heart afresh. You'll be reminded that the joys of knowing God in Christ are far more satisfying than that puny joys of that sin you're holding on to. You know that in your heart. Remember what happened when you first put your trust in Christ? Remember him pouring his love into your heart and the the joy that was overflowing from your heart? That sin doesn't come close to that. Right? Wake up! Excuse me. Wake up, church! Wake up! Believer, it's not worth it. Confess it. God brought you here tonight to hear the seriousness of sin and what he wants to do as you turn to him afresh and say, forgive me. Why am I holding on to the sin? I repent. I turn from it. Forgive me. Assure me of forgiveness. Change my heart. Help me. He will. You'll leave here freed. Freed. When you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he will. He will. Let's stand together.
Father, I pray that you would take this passage from Luke. Thank you for it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for having Luke write these words. Help us to see and feel the seriousness of sin so that we would turn to you for the first time, wanting to be forgiven, wanting to be freed from sin, wanting to be reconciled to you. And Lord, you would do that right now in this room or those who have trusted you, but are now holding on to some area of sin that they don't want to part with. Would you help them to see how deadly that is and how foolish that is? And that you are a far more satisfying joy and that right now you will assure them of forgiveness. You'll wash them clean and you will free them. Jesus, we love you. What a savior you are. You save us from sin. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.